Christ is risen. Or is he truly risen? How many people doubt the greatest event in world history? The reality that someone who was dead for three days resurrects back to life and never dies again. It sounds quite improbable, even impossible. It's no wonder that plenty of people in our contemporary society question or outright reject this miracle as nonsense. We live in quite the skeptical age that won't readily accept miracles and quite frankly rejects most religious claims. So I ask, what is reality? Such extraordinary claims like Jesus rising from the tomb after being dead three days surely doesn't seem like reality. Of course, for the very disciples and friends of Jesus, such a miracle seemed beyond belief. Mary Magdalene and the other myrrh-bearing women go to the tomb early on Sunday morning and they find it empty. They encounter an angel who tells them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's, he's arisen. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. So they go and share the good news. But it seems so unbelievable that even the disciples initially reject it. Peter and John run to the tomb and find it empty, but still struggle to believe. Then Jesus appears to ten of the disciples in the upper room, and they can't believe what they see. It is true that the Lord is alive. Two disciples, Luke and Cleopas, are walking to the village of Emmaus that same day, and they encounter the living Christ. With all these appearances, the disciples then tell Thomas about what they've experienced and seen. Yet what is his response? He says, unless I see in his hand the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Here is one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples who just a few days earlier had said that he was willing to die with Christ. Yet now, despite the testimony of all his friends who would have no reason to lie to him, he disbelieves. The entire story seems too unbelievable. Well, we all know what happens. We heard it in today's gospel. A week after Jesus appears to the ten disciples, he appears to Thomas and reprimands his unbelief. Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas then finally believes and makes the proclamation of faith, my Lord and my God. But Jesus warns him and all of us, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Aren't these the words our generation needs to hear? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want to just make a little side note here that during the 40 days following Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he appeared again and again to his followers and friends, not once or twice, but numerous times, and not only to a handful or even just his closest disciples. The risen Christ appeared also to 500 followers at once, according to St. Paul. 500 people. This was not some mass hallucination. It was not simply his followers dreaming and wanting to believe. They truly encountered 
Christ crucified, who was now alive. For those who try to say that the followers of Jesus fabricated this story, we have to carefully and seriously ask ourselves, why? Why would they make up such a story? How could they benefit from such a story? The followers of Christ were not some were not a part of some big, powerful religious institution that had the power of the state on its side, and therefore they wanted to deceive the masses. The earliest followers of Jesus, the early church, was a group of insignificant, mostly illiterate Jewish men and women who had nothing to gain by maintaining a lie. Actually, what they had to gain from proclaiming this resurrectional message was persecution, arrest, imprisonment, and even torture and death. That surely is not a reason why many people would maintain a lie. Yet they held on to their story. They traveled throughout the world sharing this story. And they didn't stop when they were arrested or when some of their friends were killed and martyred. When the larger society ridiculed, ridiculed, humiliated, rejected, and tried to destroy their movement, these simple believers continued to preach the good news. And slowly they attracted more and more people to join their community of faith. The witness of these men and women was not simply the good news of the resurrection they proclaimed, but it was the radical change that occurred in the lives of the believers, the transformation and transfiguration of their lives, which attracted people to join their movement. Now, I understand the skepticism of people to question the resurrection of Christ. That's normal. Even Thomas the Apostle questioned and doubted. If we really want to know the truth, however, we must keep an open mind and try to understand. Ask questions, but be open to the answers that we may find. Ask yourself how a movement based on the most unbelievable miracle— Jesus Christ rising from the dead after three days could become an unstoppable movement that changed the lives of millions of people throughout the centuries. And it continues to change the lives of people today, giving them hope, joy, meaning, purpose, and a new life. During this past Lenten season, we had two study groups going on in our church that were reading through C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. I think almost everyone in our two groups, almost 40 people, would agree that we were challenged, enlightened, and inspired through this study. I've told you before how this is a book about describing the ways that the devil and demons try to deceive and confuse us to keep us away from God, to keep us away from believing in Him, and to keep us away from a community of faith that may nurture and strengthen our life in Christ. Anyway, in one of the last chapters of the book, there's an enlightening section on how we perceive reality, and especially on how the devil tries to distort and cloud our sense of reality. The evil one plays off of our skeptical minds by focusing on our emotions and getting us to see all the darkness and evil around us as what the world really is, and then to plant the idea that all our comforting religious ideas are simply a fantasy. The devil wants to fog our mind 
about the meaning of the word real. He constantly tells us that any spiritual experience, any transcendent encounter, any moment when beauty and love and truth touch our souls and make us feel joyful or better or closer to God, we should look at all these things as some emotional experiences that we can't trust. They're not real. The devil whispers this in our ears. These experiences are subjective, and thus we can ignore them as some escapist dream. What is real, Satan tells us, is whatever is ugly and dark and hateful and violent in the world. Every day we can see such darkness in our headline news, and the devil wants us to believe this is real, not the experiences that touch our soul. The Apostle Thomas was tempted in this manner. Many in our modern society are not only tempted, but fully embrace the skepticism and doubt. Yet we look at history and see the reality of what a small, insignificant band of followers of Jesus Christ did. They believed. They lived according to their beliefs. And they allowed God to change their lives and to transform the lives of countless others who entered into their communion of faith. The reality of history shows that Jesus Christ did resurrect from the dead, and this living God touched and changed the lives of his followers, not only 2,000 years ago, but even today. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, and blessed are those who will repeat the words of Thomas the Apostle, my Lord and my God. I recently had the opportunity to sit with 13 young adults between the ages of 16 and 30 and talk about faith issues. I asked them, what do you believe? Why do you believe and, or don't believe? And what do you think about the church? Is it something necessary or unnecessary, helpful or unhelpful for someone's journey of faith? Now, what's interesting about this group of young adults is that all of them grew up in families of faith. And throughout childhood and into their teen years, they all went to church pretty regularly, attending Sunday school, church camps, and participating in other church activities. They all also have some strong and faithful Christian role models in their lives. Now in their young adult years, however, most of them are pretty disconnected from any community of faith. They're filled with uncertainty, questions, skepticism, and outright confusion about Jesus Christ, the importance of Holy Scripture, the role of the church, and what place faith actually has in their daily lives. I love each of these young adults and wanted to hear where they are in their spiritual journeys because I firmly believe that every single person is on a journey of faith. Whether someone considers themselves a faithful Christian, a spiritual but not religious person, a Buddhist, Muslim, Jew, an agnostic, an atheist, or someone who simply doesn't even think about anything of faith, whatever label someone places on themselves each of these labels may simply define where they may be on their journey of faith, yet they are all on a journey. And I firmly believe 
that we have to meet each person, wherever they're at, in a non-judgmental way. We have to listen to what they believe and ask them if we can journey with them. Of course, I always hope to journey with them on a path that leads toward our Creator, toward the one true God. But I realize such a journey sometimes follows a serendipitous path. Our faith journey is a lifelong adventure, and only God knows how and where it will end. Christ is knocking on the door of everyone's heart. He's patiently waiting for each person to respond to his call. He loves everyone in a distinct, intimate manner, but he loves us so much that he respects our freedom, the freedom to seek after him or the freedom to ignore him. If God patiently waits for each person, who am I then to judge or condemn anyone? Or who am I to try and coerce someone on a path they may not be ready for? I myself have discovered the pearl of great price, a treasure so beautiful and life-giving that I can't impose it on anyone. I've experienced the unconditional love and breathtaking beauty of the divine. I've truly been blessed to taste and see how good the Lord is. Yet I can only share the wonder I've experienced in faith and hope to show others the path to discover it themselves, for only they can decide whether or not they're interested. I've been thinking much about my discussions with these dear young adults, and in response to my interactions, I've decided to offer a four-part sermon series on why we believe, what we believe, and why the church is necessary for someone's journey of faith. Of course, this sermon series isn't just for those young adults, but it's for anyone who may struggle with doubts and questions and skepticism of faith. I'm thinking of people in our own church who may struggle with their faith, of the many people who have fallen away from faith, and for the countless people in our society who have never even been a part of a community of faith in their entire lives. I always remember the time one of my son's best friends from high school came to our Paschal Resurrection service a couple years ago. And when I asked him after the service what he thought, he replied, Mr. Veronis, that's only the second time in my life I've ever been inside a church. But I did learn something tonight. I never heard that Jesus rose from the dead. I learned that tonight. The following year, my son brought another of his college buddies to church. And this friend asked, why do you keep calling someone the Virgin Mary? Who is the Virgin Mary? I've never heard of her before. And why do you call her Virgin? To all those who have never experienced faith, to those who have never thought much about faith, to all those who have fallen away from faith, and to those who struggle with their faith in this skeptical age that we live in, to those who also don't want to lose their faith. This is the first part of my series, Why Believe? What do we believe? And why the church is necessary for our journey of salvation. In this part one, I want to focus simply on faith in general. And I begin with this question. Why have humans 
in every culture throughout history believed in something beyond this physical world, something beyond themselves, often something supernatural or transcendent. As diverse as cultures can be and as different as people are, each of them have come to believe in something other than themselves, whether it's in many gods, in spirits and demons, in one God. Others come to understand that everyone is on a journey beyond this place on earth, a journey toward heaven. Or maybe some people believe in multiple journeys through reincarnation, which may lead to bliss or may lead to nothingness. The interesting thing that I want to note is that all anthropologists and historians alike agree that all people in various cultures believed in something beyond this physical material world. They believed in something beyond themselves. Humans throughout history have felt that their finite and physical existence did not define the entirety of their existence. Something greater than themselves existed. And this something greater has given birth to the world's religions. We in our contemporary society should take note and be very careful. The present secular and materialistic worldview that dominates the West seeks to compartmentalize and often minimize religious and spiritual reality. Over the past 200 years, we've given in to the Enlightenment spirit, where as we progress scientifically, technologically, medically, and socially, we believe that with such progress, religion and religious ideas have become archaic and thus irrelevant. Yet with all the progress we've made over the past hundreds of years, and with the exponential changes occurring today, it's interesting to note that the human condition, the human reality, hasn't really changed at all. Literally, the same vices and temptations that plagued humanity 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago, they're the same today. Pride, greed, lust, anger, envy, apathy, laziness, gluttony, our egocentric desires which corrupt the human heart, and each of these passions lead to violence, oppression, evil, and ultimately death. No advances in technology, science, psychology, or any other field can resolve the vices of our heart. None of these advancements help us fundamentally develop and cultivate the essential virtues of life, divine love, humility, generosity, a deep-rooted sense of peace and joy and hope, or self-control, contentment, and moderation. And what is the modern world's answer to life's greatest dilemma, death itself? With all our advances, we all still die. Yes, maybe we live until we're 100 years old. But do you know that even in the Psalms 3,000 years ago, people lived into their 80s and 90s and even 100? Our modern world, with all its progress, has no answer to death. 
unlike the central message of our Christian faith. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by his own death and granting life to those in the tombs. Anyway, back to my central point, that every people and culture throughout history have believed in something beyond themselves. Why? Archbishop Anastasios of Albania, a former professor of world religions, answers this. He says, religions are born out of humanity's yearning for the sacred, for the infinite, the divine image which is humanity's essential characteristic, has never been destroyed in any of us. And this image draws us to a transcendent reality. There's something inside each of us that yearns for something beyond ourselves. This is why every people throughout history have sought after this eternal, transcendent reality. Houston Smith, the noted scholar who wrote books on the world religions and why religion matters, the fate of human spirit in an age of disbelief. He put it this way. He says, everyday earthly existence cannot satisfy the human heart completely. Built into the human makeup is a longing for something more, something more than the world of everyday experience can offer. This longing strongly suggests the existence of the something that life reaches for in the ways that the wings of a bird point to the reality of the air. Both Archbishop Anastasius and Houston Smith challenge our secular, materialistic worldview which tries to minimize or eliminate faith. Yet we learn from history that humanity was created for something greater than our present human condition, something greater than the here and now. No matter how prosperous, comfortable, well-educated, and happy we may be in this eternal life, there is something deep within each one of us that longs for something beyond ourselves. Maybe we can conclude this part one series with the wise words of St. Augustine, who summarized our human condition best. He said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. <laughs>